Welcome and thank you for tuning in to listen to our next episode on our podcast, We Buzz, produced by Animal Concepts. My name is Sabrina Brando. I'm the founder of Animal Concepts, and we help you care for animals and for yourself and support you in your other goals, such as conservation, education, and research. Today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Fernando Trujillo, who is a marine biologist, a corresponding member of the Colombian Academy of Sciences, and a National Geographic Explorer. Welcome, Fernando, to the podcast. I'm really delighted to have you. Thank you very much for this invitation. I am honored to be with you after so long time we, we know each other. Yes, yeah, we met uh, 24 years ago, right? At the uh, Society for Marine Mammalogy meeting uh, com combined with the European Cetacean Society, right? Yes, it's true. It's, uh, the time is just goes so fast. I, I can't believe it. This morning I was thinking about these 24 years. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. And in the meantime, you have, you know, we have shared lots of different stories about, you know, obviously your work and, you know, you were doing your PhD in Scotland and we're going to hear about all those things. And at some point I got a picture. I still have it of this beautiful dolphin, you know, named with my name. It's still so dear to me. So I, I'm, I cannot tell you, I'm so delighted to have you on the podcast today. And so for those of you listening and have never heard of Dr. Fernando Trujillo, please, Fernando, take us away with a short story and introducing yourself. Well, I am a marine biologist. I am from Colombia. I started to study marine biology in the 80s, and I wanted to work with dolphins, whales, sharks, or with other vertebrates that will be in danger in the oceans or in the rivers. So I, I had the opportunity to, to listen a, a talk, a lecture from Jacques Cousteau uh, in my university. And at that time I was uh, learning a little bit French. So I, I, I could make some questions uh, to him. And he said to me, dolphins in the Amazon, you should go. Uh, and it was something like, uh, wow, in the Amazon? A very remote area, even in my country. So I, I remember in 1987, I took a plane, uh, a military plane, and I went to the Amazon uh, with a lot of fears. I, I, I was very unsure. I was in the middle of my career, but I, I found a paradise. Uh, it was incredible, the Amazon. I was captivated uh, and I fall in love with the dolphins. They're still 35 years later, I, I am always say that's incredible. Dolphins in the Amazon, in fresh water, in an area where you have trees, you have uh, parrots, toucans, jaguars, and even you find uh, dolphins. So that was uh, incredible. So I, I, I built my career uh, around this conservation project. Uh, not only the dolphins, also to protect the, the rivers, the Amazon, the Orinoco. And the dolphins became in a very interesting tool in some way to, to protect the, 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 the Amazon. They, they are the ambassadors of the larger uh, rivers. So I, I started to do all my career around the dolphins, around the, the people in the Amazon. I did my master's degree in environmental science in London. Then I did my PhD in Scotland. And, and I create uh, an organization, uh, Omacha Foundation. Wonderful. So before we're going to dive further into, you know, your work in, in Colombia and actually in many other countries where the Amazon and the Orinoco, and we're going to hear a lot more about that. Can you tell us a little bit about what did you do in Scotland with your PhD and dolphins? <laughs> yes, well, I went to Scotland and everybody asked me, why Scotland? And I used just to say, no, the weather is very similar in Scotland and in the Amazon. And they say, really? I say, no, this Scotland is very cold. Uh, but I, I found a very good people in Scotland, in Aberdeen University, that uh, really understand uh, conservation. So I, I did my PhD uh, in Aberdeen University, and uh, I basically used my data from many years uh, with river dolphins. 
Uh, I went a couple of times back to the Amazon and collect uh, new information. And I did my thesis uh, focusing in habitat use, behavior, and a little bit how to count uh, river dolphins. That is a very challenging thing to do. So why is it so challenging to count river dolphins? Or are you saying it's challenging to count any dolphins or in particular any river dolphins? Well, you can imagine that dolphins are most of the time underwater. You are in the Amazon and most of the water in the Amazon is very murky. So you cannot see the dolphins underwater. It's very, very strange to find places where you can do that. so regarding this, it was very, very hard. And I will explain you with a, a little story. Uh, when I started to count the dolphins, uh, we were three young guys. And we split in different areas, uh, in our study area. So I spent 10 hours or 11 hours in, a, in, a, in, in the shore of a, a small tributary or in the shore of a lake or that, at the confluence of a river. We were killing mosquitoes the whole day and counting dolphins. And at the end of the day, we, we joined together and we, we were asking ourselves, how many dolphins do you see? And uh, I used to say, well, I, I counted uh, 80 and the other guy say 84 and the other guy say 200. And the indigenous just love. And we, we asked the indigenous, why you are loving of us? And, and they say, you are counting the same dolphins. Really? And yes, the dolphins just cross in front of us and then return and cross again. So we were doing in a bad way. So we need to create a different methodology to do that. So I started to use a boat and I I used to go uh, faster than the dolphins doing some transits. And I spent like 10 years counting the dolphins in that way. Uh, Almost 300 days per year, a lot. And when I went to Scotland, I had the opportunity to talk with Steve Buckland, one of the uh, guys that uh, create the distance program. And I explained why I, what I was doing with, with the dolphins. And they were amazed and say, why you are spending so much time counting the dolphins? You can do it in eight days. I say, no, really? Say, yes. So I started a new, a, a new step in my, in my career. Uh, with this conversation with Steve Brooklyn. And uh, we create a partnership with the St. Andrews University. And we rent a boat uh, in the Amazon in 2001. And we create a methodology. We, we develop this uh, robust methodology uh, using large boats in the Amazon, covering large areas. And so far, we have uh, surveyed more than 50,000 kilometers of rivers in six countries. So we, we changed the scale of our study from a very small area in the Amazon, in uh, this very teeny uh, town uh, called Puerto Nariño, where I started uh, 35 years ago. And, and now we are serving the, the, the whole Amazon and a lot of tributaries with a lot of people. We create uh, an initiative that is called SARDI, so the American River Dolphins Initiative. We have a partnership with Mamirawa Institute in Brazil, We have Faunawa in Bolivia, uh, Solinia in Peru, and of course, WWF in all these countries. And and Omacha create this very strong bond uh, with all these organizations. So now we have trained more than 490 people doing all this counting. So that that was very, very interesting. And as well, of course, we don't have the answer about the number, the definitive number of dolphins in, in the whole Amazon but we are incorporating uh, new technologies like uh, use of drones uh, to count uh, dolphins at the confluence of rivers. Uh, and also we are starting to uh, use F-Pods that is a kind of acoustic device uh, to try to see if we can count dolphins from the acoustic point of view. So all this is very challenging. So for those listening that like most people have heard about the Amazon one way or another it's either in the news because it's obviously it's burning there's so much destruction people know it from you know wonderful books table books photos and all but just you know can you talk to us about when you say the Amazon and when you talk about the countries or the rivers like what where are we talking about for me is one of the most important area in the planet 
is the largest tropical forest uh, on earth and one of the largest river as well, 6,500 kilometers, starting from the Andes to the Atlantic, and also more than 1,000 tributaries just feeding this Jan River. And they produce the 17% of the fresh water of the planet. And one important thing, one or of 10 species in the planet are in the Amazon, one of 10. So it's very, very important. Also, there are a lot of human communities, indigenous living there. But everything is changing very fast in the Amazon. Now we have more than 43 millions of people living there, but only 3.5 millions of people are indigenous. The other people just came from other regions. They, they, they went to the Amazon, they moved to the Amazon for cattling, for a soya crop. Uh, there are a lot of roads, uh, crossing the Amazon, especially in Brazil. There are a lot of uh, dams uh, just breaking the, the connection of the rivers. The connectivity of the rivers are uh, very uh, under, under threat because the dams, we have more than 50, 150 uh, dams in the uh, long areas of Brazil. Uh, and we have a lot in the Andes. And what happened with the hydroelectrics and with the dams? The idea was good to try to find uh, uh, energy from the, from the power of nature. But the scale, I think, is, is, is the mistake. We are just cutting the, the, the rivers, the flow of the rivers. Most people used to say that the Amazon is like the lung of, of the planet. I used to say that is the heart. Because if you see the Amazon, you, you can see a heart, and all the rivers are like the veins of the heart. What happens when you are just closing all these veins? The heart and the body is going to collapse. And this is what is happening in the Amazon now. These hydroelectrics in the Andes are just stopping the nutrients uh, that are moving from the Andes to the Amazon. Uh, the nutrients are feeding the fish and are giving the food security for 43 million of people living there. So we are collapsing everything. We have overfishing, we are burning the, the, the forest to establish uh, crops and to establish uh, farms, uh, and we don't care about that. And the Amazon as well, most, most people probably don't know that, but in the Amazon, we really have three different rivers. We have the actual river Amazon, we, we can see, and we have on the, on the ground, uh, some meters on the, on, on the ground deep, another river. There's a lot of water running uh, on, on the deep of, of the Amazon. And as well, we have a third river in the atmosphere. All the evapotranspiration of the, of the clouds and, and the trees just uh, uh, throwing water into the atmosphere produce the third river that moved from the Atlantic to the Andes. So now, for example, with a project we have with National Geographic, we are going to follow a drop of water from the Amazon to the Andes to show the people all this strong connection. Here in South America, we have sand from the Sahara in Africa. So this sand is crossing the Atlantic to our continent. So now you can imagine what happened with the water. The water of the Amazon are moving in a planetary way. So everything is well connected. So we, we need to do something to stop this, all these threats, and it's not easy. So with the dolphins, with the story around the dolphins, we are trying to connect people in the cities and the politicians and the stakeholders uh, to understand the importance of the rivers, the importance of the Amazon. And we are doing some interesting changes. We are achieving some, some good initiatives. We are working with local people because as well, this is the key. We need changes from the political point of view, but we need as well to, to involucrate in many ways, the local communities, their perspective, what is happening there and what they need uh, to do all these changes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just recently, I'm tuning in from France at the moment, close to Bordeaux. Yeah, and, and my whole car was also completely, you know, 
covered in desert sand. So uh, it's realistic for lots of us, um, you know, this, this idea of how everything is interconnected and how indeed, like you say, everything, you know, whether it's, and it's beautiful, that sort of image, right? These three layers. And I've seen some of the documentaries and some of the, the papers who talk about these various waters, waterways uh, in different spaces, um, whether they are in the sky on the land or underwater, but uh, this, how are we all uh, connected? And so can you, can we also hear from you? What, you know, is Fondacion Omacha? What are you doing? Like, and where is it located? I mean, you have obviously a headquarter, but then you have a field station. So can you talk to us a little bit about the foundation and the people in it before we go into more detail on animals and indigenous peoples? I think Omacha is a, a kind of dream. I, I wanted to spend my life doing something good. And I just tried to, to dream. And, and uh, when I went to the Amazon and I could see all these threats and all these needs for the local people, I, I decided to, to create something. And I created this NGO called Omacha. And, and, and the name is, is very important for me, it's powerful uh, in, many, in many ways, because when I started to work, uh, the indigenous uh, people started to call me Omacha. And I thought it was a bad word. Uh, and I was, uh, was asking them what Omacha means, and they just laughed. So one day I, I say, no, look, I need to know why you are calling me Omacha. And for the indigenous, Omacha is the dolphin that became into human. So they, they thought that I was a dolphin and transformed myself into a human to protect the dolphins. So that was so beautiful. My, my oldest daughter, Diana, they, they call the Omacha Ak, the calf of the dolphin in, in Tikuna language. And all the, the young researchers that started to go with me, they were the small Omachas, the Omachitas. So when I decided to create the, the organization, I put it Omacha not because me, uh, was because Omacha is a kind of metaphor uh, to put yourself in the skin of a species or in the skin of an ecosystem to try to do something for that species or, or that ecosystems. So it was a very strong commitment uh, for me. Uh, and Omacha became in, into a small NGO with a very big shadow. So we established uh, Omacha here in Colombia and we work in the Caribbean we work in the Orinoco and we work, of course, in the Amazon. Uh, we have uh, another office in Spain, in Villarreal, and, and we have partnerships with different people in different areas of South America. Omacha had been in India, in the Ganges, in, in, in the Mekong River, in Cambodia. We have been in the Antarctic, uh, in, in different countries trying to do this be in the skin of the species or the ecosystems and trying to do something, something different. And as well, when I was starting to work with indigenous, they, they, don't, they didn't like uh, biologists and anthropologists. Still, they don't. Uh, and I asked, why? Why not? And they used to say to me, well, you came here, spend one week of your lives, collect data, and then you are the experts in the Amazon and disappear and never return. And I was thinking, yes, it's true. So let's do in a different way. So I, I decided to stay in this small town called Puerto Nariño in, in the Colombian Amazon in the border with Peru. And I built a field station. I, I received uh, uh, some money, 5,265 pounds from the Well and Dolphin Conservation Society from England. And with that money, I built a field station. Now that field station is 28 years old. I need to do another one. Uh, but when I did that, I, I, I was 20, 24 years old. I was very young. I, 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 could, I couldn't believe that. For me now, it's like, uh, oh, do I need to do another field station or not? Uh, I, I had a lot of power and energy and passion along my, my career to try to do all these things. So yes, I decided to, to have the, the local point of view for all the conservation projects. I, I remember when I was at the school and, and the, 
lectures ask me what you want to do in life. And I used to say, I want to be a scientist, but I want to be as well a humanist. And they say, no, 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 that two things are not compatible. You, you need to select one or another. And I was thinking, oh, okay, it, it, it's difficult. But now I understand that it's, it's, it's possible and it's necessary. You, you cannot be only connect, co collecting uh, scientific data and, and, and that's it. You need to, 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 do, to use this uh, scientific data for something with a purpose in life. So I, I discovered, yes, I love dolphins. I want to protect the dolphins. I want to protect the Amazon, but as well, the people living there. Uh, so it's impossible. You, you need to have the two elements, the humanism and, and, and the science and put together for the conservation. So this is one of my, my contributions, I think, uh, to try to put this together. And it's one of the uh, signature of Omacha Foundation. We try to do this scientific research, very committed with the local people and create economic solutions uh, for that people. Because you cannot do conservation when you are uh, hungry. Uh, you, if you have a lot of needs, uh, you cannot think in conservation. It's easy from the cities. You say, oh, bad people are cutting trees. Oh, bad people are doing illegal gold mining. But those people need money to live. They are not more like the uh, original indigenous living in remote areas, just fishing and hunting uh, and, and planting some, uh, some groceries. Uh, they are now part of the Western civilization, the, the very aggressive ca capitalist life of, of, of style of life. So they need to buy things. So it's, it's very hard. It's very challenging try to look how to conserve the Amazon in a long term and try to solve the economic problem for 43 millions of people there. So obviously, like you say, it's not only you know, necessary, it's really the only way forward, right? And it's this whole, the combination of science and humans. And then the, I love it, the, the, the dolphin people, right? Or the, the omachist that all, that all come together. But, and so when you talk to the indigenous peoples there or people that have been there at least for a very long time, what are some of their ideas or proposals on how, you know, things, should move forward in a more sustainable way? In what ways are they talking about harmonizing or in what ways do they now have to act differently or live differently than they would in the past because their forest is disappearing or what are some of their, uh, what are some of the lessons you learned from them? I think many of them are trapped between two different cultures. The, the elderly people wants to, to concern uh, their culture, their knowledge of, of the forest and, and the style of life they have. The young people are very attracted for the Western civilization, for the Western uh, culture. They want to have a motorbike, a mobile phone. They want to move to the cities because it's the things they are selling to them. Uh, if you want to be uh, a successful uh, person, uh, you have to have money. This is the, the sentence you always have everywhere in the planet. And, and sadly, uh, the young people, the indigenous young people are, are believing this. So it's very hard, it's very hard. Uh, and also they need to understand the scale of the Amazon. They, they don't know properly because they are living in the same point forever, for generations. So they know, that the Amazon is very important because they, they listen that. The, the Western people used to say, the Amazon is the lung of the, of, of the world. We need the oxygen of, of the Amazon, the, the climatic stabilization from the Amazon. So they, they are very proud of this and, and, and they want to preserve. Uh, but the thing we are doing now is try to, to create or, or to build uh, good leadership in, in the indigenous. And for that, we are taking people from different villages and we are doing interchange between uh, countries and between places. 
we are promoting conservation agreements with them, not from our perspective, uh, but from their perspective, what they need to conserve. For example, the fisheries, uh, they, they recognize there are very bad uh, fishing practices. So we ask them what will be the, the good uh, fishing practices. So they propose, we endorse these uh, good fishing practices. We find the money to support the indigenous people to do all this monitoring and all this process. And it's, it's working. Now they, they are recovering the fisheries in some areas. And, and I believe women are very important for the indigenous communities. Uh, unfortunately, I have to say that uh, men, we are very corrupt in many ways. And most of the money they, they, the men receive in a community, they spend on drinks. <clears throat> but when you involve the women, all this money go for the families. Uh, and for example, uh, now our, our uh, coordinator in the Amazon, in our field station in the Amazon, is a, a indigenous woman, is a leader in, in, their, in, in her community. And at the beginning, she was very uh, skeptical about Omacha and, and, and Western people trying to uh, bring this uh, conservation uh, discourse or, or, or talk. But then she started to work with us uh, and she learned a lot. She's uh, traveling different countries and, and talking with different indigenous people. Uh, and now she is the person coordinating the fishery agreements. And when you think that, it's not easy because the fishermen are men and it's a woman, a woman who is in charge of everything. Uh, and it's working. Uh, and she's a very good leader. And we need to create more indigenous leader. And if you see the news, if you see all the, the, the people talking about uh, uh, of the conservation of the Amazon, you will note it that there are a lot of women, a lot of indigenous women. And I think this is the, the keystone uh, for that and to try to understand the, the needs of the families of the indigenous people and the people in the Amazon through the voice of this uh, very strong uh, character and, and very well-known uh, woman in, in the Amazon. So I think the future is, is there. It's, it's, it's hard, but it is it's there. What are some of the, just prior, you know, to uh, starting the recording of the podcast, you and I talked about some of the activities or some of the things that you are doing together with the indigenous peoples in their forests today that they would they would never do in the past. So can you talk to us a little bit, what sort of changes are there and, and from what sort of threats do they emanate? Yes, we, we are talking about deforestation. We are losing the, the, the forest. And from my, my perspective, one of the forests that is more valuable is the flooded forest. Uh, I will introduce here a concept that is very interesting uh, for you to know, and is the flood pools. The flood pools in the Amazon, you can understand as the bread of, of, the, of the rainforest. They take air and it's the flooding. Thousands of kilometers are flooded uh, in the river because the rain and, and, and because there's a lot of water there. It's not only 15 meters in a vertical level, it's thousands of kilometers in our horizontal uh, layer. And then everything is contracted and all the water disappear and all the fish and everything is contracted in a small uh, channels of the rivers. It's the dry season. So you have these very uh, contrasting uh, seasons and all the life is very well adapted to that. When it starts to rain, all the trees start to drop the, the, the seeds. At the high level of the water, all the seeds just drop and the seeds are dispersed to recover the forest. But as well, 60% of the seeds are the food of fish. The indigenous used to call the magical tree of the fish. And they talk about a very magical tree that during the winter with a lot of rain, there's a lot of small worms on the 
canopy of the, of the trees. And with the thunders, they are very scared and they drop from the, the tree and drop into the water. When they drop into the water, they transform on fish. And for the indigenous, these magical trees keep the fish uh, health of the ecosystem. And it's exactly the same scientific explanation. We have trees on the flooded forest that produce the seeds. And if you cut all these trees, you are not going to have uh, fishes. So basically, we are in a moment now when we need to plant trees. And the indigenous never planted in a voluntary way a tree. They eat a fruit and they throw the, the seed. And from this seed, another tree grows. Uh, but now they need to plant because the deforestation is so fast and the forest need to recover in, in the same proportion. So when we started to, to, to talk with indigenous about to plant trees, they were saying like, why? We never have planted a tree before, but now they understand why they need to do that. But during the, learn, during the process, we have a lot of learnings. We were collecting seeds uh, for months and planting on, on, on plastic bags to grow the, 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 the tree. And again, the indigenous love. They, they love a lot about the things I, I, I was doing for 35 years. I say, okay, now why I did wrong? Uh, and they say, why you plant the seeds if you have a lot of very young trees around the principal tree, the, 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 the big one, and most of all these trees are going to die during the, the high water period. So now we are removing all these small trees growing uh, around the tree. We keep in a plant nursery, and then with the families, the indigenous families, we are planting again in a very key areas uh, to grow the, the trees, and we are recovering the, 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 the flooded forest. So it makes sense. And, and, and now we are working on, on, on this. I, I am very happy because I am involving my oldest uh, daughter, uh, Diana. She's an anthropologist. Uh, and she's going to work with me to try to understand this relationship between the people and the trees. And this is the other factor that most people in the planet don't understand. Uh, you, you, you listen, you heard that there are a lot of deforestation on, on, on the forest and you are losing a lot of trees. But the people never connect what is really a tree. Each tree is an ecosystem because in one tree, for example, in a big save of 50 meters high, there are hundreds, if not thousands of animals, ants, different kinds of insects, spiders, birds, frogs living on the, on the canopy, uh, mammals, uh, uh, reptiles, uh, there's a lot of life. So every time you burn an hectare of forest, you are killing basically thousands, millions of uh, uh, animals and, and, also, and other plants as well. So the trees itself, they are an ecosystem as well. And the indigenous know that very well. And we want to give this knowledge to the planet, to the other people to understand it's not just a tree, it's an ecosystem. We are just killing. Yes, and it's really important, of course, also to uh, build up the muscle that it's okay to be laughed at and then be open to learning. So, okay, why are they laughing at us, right? Because we are so used to doing things in certain ways, depending on where we come from. And then, you know, this sort of willingness that you're talking about of learning from others and, and seeing what is that they are seeing that I'm not seeing, or what is it that they know, right, that we don't know. And very much also this, what does it mean, right, uh, from a spiritual perspective, uh, connection, all kinds of different connections. What is just, obviously, the tree is, you know, we often talk about them as resources, um, but who, like, who is that tree in itself as being a tree? And then it's an ecosystem. And, and what also do those particular trees mean to people? And what sort of connections are there? Those are wonderful stories. And I'm glad you're working on that. There are a lot of stories. And, and, and for many indigenous communities, the tree is the origin of the Amazon. 
And there is a, a kind of a myth of legend that talk about a huge tree that is called the, the Seiba. Uh, and the animals knew that they needed to take down the tree to, to have access to the food. And a lot of animals tried. The woodpecker, uh, the crab, uh, the squirrel, everybody tried to, to put down the tree and they couldn't afford that. Something was like a very strong invisible forces was taking the tree from the sky and don't allow to, to take down. So they sent a bird to the, to the canopy of the tree to see what happened. And they discovered a slot. A slot was supporting the tree. So a small crab just climbed the tree and make a quickles in, uh, on, on the slot and they just uh, release the tree. And when the tree just go down, the main trunk of the tree transform into the Amazon and all the branches in the old rivers. And from the rocks, it started the mandioca. The mandioca is the sacred plant for the indigenous, is the food. And so from that moment, all the civilization from the indigenous point of view started in the Amazon with a single tree, the seiba, the magical seiba. So now you understand why it's so powerful the, the importance of the trees for the indigenous people. Absolutely. And I think it's also, you know, there obviously there's more and more attention to forests and plants and, you know, the roles that they play. But overall, it's mainly, you know, iconic species like the river dolphin or the, you know, the Amazon otters or the manatees, or it's often, you know, the, the other animals that we often talk about. And so, and of course, you know, this whole discourse that you've been talking about, this connection about the nutrients from the Andes to, you know, the Amazon and everything being interconnected, how important it is to really talk about the vegetation of all kinds, right? And so you work on this space as well. And can you tell us a little bit more about the species of animals? You talked about, obviously, the dolphins. What species of animals are you working on? And and what sort of threats are they facing? What are some of the, the concerns there? Okay, I am very focused in, in aquatic species like uh, river dolphins, manatees, young otters, or otters, uh, caimans, fish. But as well, I, I haven't incorporated all species like jaguars, tapirs, uh, armadillos, uh, turtles, different species because everything is part of the same. Uh, this interface between water and, and land and the flooded forests and the pools, it makes me understand that everything is connected. But my passion, of course, uh, is with dolphins. Uh, I, I dedicated my life uh, to study these species. Uh, we started, I started all this uh, long journey in my career thinking in uh, two different species in the Amazon, the gray dolphin or the tukushi and the, the pink river dolphin, the, the, the bottle, uh, the buffalo. And now uh, working with a lot of genetics, uh, we probably believe that we are going to have five or six different species of dolphins. The, the story of dolphins are fascinated. They are connected with the evolution and the uh, biogeography of the continent, the South American continent. So they have been there for more than two millions of years, two millions of years evolving the Amazon River dolphin. And the, the Tukushi, the great dolphin, just came in, in, in this scenario uh, just now during the last 500,000 years. It's, a, 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 it's just re, uh, reaching the, 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 the Amazon uh, from the Atlantic. But the, the, the Botos, the, the river dolphin, the Amazon river dolphin, have spent two millions of years adapting to these flood pools. So they are very different to the marine dolphins. They have a very long snouts. They have very small eyes, but they can see as well. They can see. They have a special pigments on, on the eyes that magnify the light in a, a very poor conditions. They are able to move the head side to side. The, the marine dolphins can't because the vertebrate are fusionate because they want to be very hydrodynamic. But in the Amazon, they, they don't need to swim very fast. So 
when they move in, into the flooded forest, they basically can fly between the, the branches of the trees, looking for the piranhas, looking for the catfish, and they can turn the head and with the longest note, just trap the fish. And they have a, a very interesting flippers, like they can rotate as well and they can push on the, on the, with the trees when everything is flooded. So they're very, very well adapted. And as of course, they have a very good ecolocation system, the sonar. They are, they are living in very murky waters that they need to have a very, very good sonar to detect the fish, to detect uh, trunks, to detect nets, to avoid problems. So they are very sophisticated uh, sonar for river dolphins. And other very interesting factor of this species is that they can be pink, very pink. And uh, the people are amazed of that. Why they, the river dolphins are pink? Uh, maybe because they are eating crabs or, or shrimps like the flamingos. Uh, and the answer is not. It's more simple than that. Everybody, when you are doing an exercise, uh, like doing basketball, you became very red, red face. And this is just a thermodynamic strategy. A lot of blood just go to the skin uh, to regulate the temperature. And for dolphins, it's the same in the Amazon. They are gray, and after a lot of exercise, they became pink, very pink. And after they stop the exercise, they can return to the original color. It changed a lot between individuals. Not all became very, very pink. Uh, all, some remain gray, gray uh, light gray, but some of them are very, very pink. So there are a lot of myths and legends around the, the, the pink river dolphins. Uh, they are also very important for the indigenous communities. They have a lot of stories about the dolphins. Uh, good stories, bad stories. Uh, they are very powerful uh, animals. And essentially, the dolphins are the jaguars in the water. They are the top predators in the water. So you can see the dolphins as these kind of jaguars. You have as well the manatees, the very gentle creatures. They are herbivorous. They only eat plants. Uh, they grow like 300 kilograms and three meters long. Uh, and there are very few because for years people kill the animal, the, the manatees and eat it basically. Uh, we have giant otters, two meters long, and they are a little bit rare to find in the Amazon because they were hunted in the fifties uh, because the, the fur, uh, they are recovering now. This is the good news with the, with the otters. They are recovering in many, many places, uh, but they are, there are a lot of conflicts between fisheries and dolphins and otters because there are few fish and everybody wants the fish. So the fishermen used to say, oh, the dolphins are stealing our fish from the nets. I say, look, how many years have been you here in, in the Amazon? Say, oh, my family have been here for generations. And I say, okay, if you are indigenous, you, you have been here maybe for the last 14,000 years. It's a lot of time, isn't it? And they say, yes, it's a lot. I say, okay, river dolphins have been here for two millions of years. And they say, oh, so we are stealing the fish for the dolphins, isn't it? I say, yes, in some way, but you can share. And, and, and this is very important, a very good uh, talk to start to see that we need to plan how to catch the fish and how to conserve the fish in a long term. And that was the way we, we, do, we did these conservation agreements with indigenous. So at the, at the beginning, they thought that the otters and the dolphins were stealing the fish. And no, they were there before uh, the, the humans arrived to the Amazon. So it, it changed the perspective. So it's, it's very good to, to, to tell the signs from a different perspective for the local people and they understand. Uh, some, so a month ago, two months ago, I, I was just tracking uh, in the art rock of, of the indigenous in the Amazon, the presence of aquatic animals. And I found stingrays, I found uh, catfish, uh, turtles. And finally, I found a dolphin with a calf in one of these beautiful droughts uh, in, in, in an area of transition between the Amazon and the Orinoco. And the droughts have probably more than 6,000 years old. 
So the dolphins were important as well for the local people that uh, just moved in, into the, these areas. So it's very, it's very good to know these stories and, and to share with the people. Uh, at the end, everything is about this, how to use and incorporate the local knowledge and how to incorporate the knowledge of science in one single proposal. That is the conservation of the Amazon. And this is the thing we, we are trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about stories and about interconnection and about, you know, people's understanding other people's people understanding other animals connecting to, you know, obviously the forest that is so, you know, important to them. But you very much talk about you, of course, you talk about science, but you also talk about connecting to hearts, right? Connecting to minds. Um, you work on all kinds of different educational programs. You also use art, uh, obviously you use storytelling. So can you talk to us a little bit, you know, we're getting closer to the end of the podcast, but it would be wonderful to hear in what ways are you, you know, connecting or what sort of wonderful content are you putting out or putting out together with people there? Well, I think the, the art is very important. Uh, when I started to work in the Amazon, I remember the first day when I was asking the local people to, to cart a dolphin for me. They don't used to do that uh, 35 years ago. And now more than 300 families in the Amazon receive income because the carvings, the beautiful carving of dolphins, and they are also creating uh, mythologies uh, in, in trunks. They have the, the, the magical tree of, of the fish, they carve, they have uh, the transformation of dolphins into humans. And, and this is very special because the people are very proud of the dolphins and, and they are receiving income from, from that. Uh, we are, for example, creating a, a dolphin watching uh, good practices in, in the Amazon. And it was funny because all these fishermen complaining with the dolphins, we are training them and they are now local guides that receive more money uh, from the dolphins than even from, from the fish, because it's very hard to, to, to fish now. Uh, so everything is changing. And now is the dolphins are very iconic everywhere. So you can go from one of these cities in, in Brazil, in Peru, in Ecuador, in Bolivia, and you can see dolphins in the well, in the walls, dolphins everywhere. It's a, a, a very strong representation. They do care about the dolphins. They do understand that the dolphins are an opportunity for, for, for them for the, to, to improve their, their livelihoods and also for the conservation of the rivers. They are moving people from the cities to, to know the Amazon, to, to be connected with the Amazon and to understand a little bit the, the local practices and the local culture. So as you say, everything is very well interconnected. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, some of the aspects also of in what way do you create income for people without adding more pressure to like, right, we, we are adding more stuff to the world. And in what way do we do that in a in an eco in a in a more sustainable manner, right? Uh, so it's it's all those things together where you are. So when you're adding more stories and and do those sorts of connections, then we're not necessarily adding materialistic aspects, right? Or if you're adding experiences, um, then and and what would that mean when when people travel for? you know, eco tours, um, in what ways are they eco, really eco-friendly or in all those sorts of things, everything is interconnected. And I know you are together with all the people you're working with, you're really paying attention to those details. And over the years, you have won quite a few awards. And I think this is important to highlight because it of course is important that it is recognized. The work that you're doing through your foundation with all your partnerships all around the world, including you know, uh, universities and, and, and governmental organizations, but especially also the work with the people on the, in the places where they live and connected to the forest and animals. Uh, you've won the Whitley Award and some others. Can you talk to us a little bit why that was important and, and in what ways has that helped your mission of trying to do something? Because that's really a, a red thread through the whole of the podcast. You're trying to make a difference. Well, I think... It's very hard and very difficult and sometimes frustrating uh, to run an NGO. 
because you should uh, look for money uh, for the projects and to give a long-term process for these uh, projects. It's not just one thing you can do one month and you save the Amazon and, and that's it or, or to save any species. So along my career, I, I have been very close to quit many times. and say, I, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. Uh, I need to find a proper job. I need to look for my family um, and also the people working with me. Uh, and I remember in particular in 2006, I was very close to quit and I won the Whitley Award. And that changed everything because I could see from, from the eyes of other people at the international level, they trusted what I was doing in the Amazon and they thought it was important uh, to work with, with, with this recognition. So I don't know what is going to happen with my life and with Omacha Foundation. I don't know the direction. We have a lot of learnings in the process. Uh, sometimes I'm very pessimist because the, the challenge are huge and all the economic uh, threats and, and, and the inaction of the politicians are huge. But I convinced we need to fight until the last breath and, and try to make a difference. And all these awards are, are important for that. Uh, during the last two years, now I'm National Geographic Explorer. And just today we are launching uh, and the Amazon Perpetual Planet project for two years with three different, five different projects along the Amazon from Andes to Atlantic. And I think it's a good opportunity through National Geographic and Disney to connect the people with the Amazon, to see still we can do something, to that people understand how important is that region of the planet for everybody. So I don't know. I probably I will have a bad moments, and I hope to have a good moments as well along the the the, the life, the, the rest of my life. But I, I will keep going and I will try to, to keep my passion, my energy and my love for the Amazon and all these animals is the only I have. Absolutely. And I think it's, for, for me, you're a huge inspiration and you are one of the people that early in my career, actually, I think it was more of a sight thing. It had nothing to do with my career, but you had the nickname Hummingbird for me. And you yes. were one of the few people that uh, talked about that. And it's, and it's uh, the hummingbird is for me a very important animal and, and it's certainly very much connected also to you. And it's very much connected to what we have been talking about today. Um, and, and I'm using the, the, the hummingbird as an analogy you're using, obviously, you know, turning, being the dolphin uh, person or, you know, putting into the skin of, but really in what ways can we do something, right? In what way can you as a small person, as a, as an organization in the place that you are, in what way can you beam this light out and make a difference, right? Even though, like you say, the, the threats are huge, it's really hard. And I think all of us in, in whatever work that you're in uh, face this, right? Where we have to accept that we cannot do it all, that it's, you know, there, it's limited, but we are trying to do something, right? We're gonna keep fighting for change and being change makers together. And I thank you so much for being um, that inspiration also to me. And you are doing as well. You are a hummingbird. You have a lot of energy. You are connecting people. You are this amazing project of animal concepts. We are connecting people from around the world with different, uh, different initiatives that are very powerful and important for life. So I think we are few but we need to do a lot of efforts and try to transform people and trying to involve people. The people cannot be still living in, in their bubbles. Uh, at the cities, they, they are in a bubble. They, they think that everything is just going to a mall and, and buy and consumption. And now we need to change our habits. I, I was a little with a lot of, of uh, hope during the COVID uh, pandemic because despite the, the terrible thing, I, I thought we were in a point of reflection uh, of how we can change things. 
we we understood we we, we didn't need a lot of uh, wells and, and things uh but not the the pandemic is is just moving up and we are recovering the same habits we need to learn we need to learn we need to move forward we need to be committed con with something it's important it's not a fight of few people it's a fight of everybody we are all in this in this amazing blue planet that we call earth and we need to do something absolutely so if people obviously with this podcast there's all these links you know to omacha and so on but what are some of the concrete things if people are like i want to help you know obviously it can be local but in what ways could they you know help you or help your team many people from organizations all the time just ask money for their organization of course we need money but people can be very aware of the consumption for example if you want to go for a, a jewelry uh, ask why where the, the, the gold come from what are the the traceability of these uh, wells uh, the, the fisheries what are the fish you are eating today what did they come from uh, try to be more clever consumers try to involve try to make questions I think it's a, a, a good way to help a good way to, to be involved. Uh, if you have the opportunity to travel, go to the Amazon, not in a luxury uh, travel, because you are going to travel in a bubble as well. Uh, try to visit the, the indigenous communities, try to, to live with, with them in a, a small tourist uh, initiatives, try to share, try to understand, and try to help. Try to help in different ways. Uh, I think this is my message. Be a good person, be committed. Yeah, absolutely, right? Try and see in what way can you make a difference in you know, how you shop, how you, what you buy, and what sort of things can you be doing? It's absolutely fundamental. Fernando, yes. thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. We always like to ask our podcasters to close with a story that makes their heart sing, something that's dear to them. And uh, of course, we also would like to invite you for that story. I don't know, I have, I have so many stories, but probably one that changed a lot of my life was uh, in an occasion, I, I, some fishermen uh, told me about uh, one, uh, they, they were fishing and, and two dolphins were cached on the net. One died and the other, they had a life. So I went quickly with, with them in a canoe in the flood forest. Uh, it was a mother and the calf. And the mother was uh, died, and the calf they tied for the tail to the a, a trunk on the on the flooded uh, area, and the poor calf needed to go uh, through the the tail to to breed, and they were cutting the the tail was very injured. So I I, I released the the animal and I took with me for a a, a pool uh, that was abandoned uh, for years uh, for years. And I put it in the pool. I was with the, with the animal for, I don't know, hours, uh, trying to, to, to sustain uh, uh, the, the calf. And I decided to, to move forward with, with the, that calf for some days and to clean the pool, the pool. But I didn't know that the people used to put piranhas inside the pool, alive piranhas. So the piranhas were biting the, the, the calf during the night. Uh, next day, I released the, the, the calf in a, in a lake with another a mother and calf. But two, two days later, I found dead the animal. It was very painful for me because I felt frustrated because I didn't have a fill station. I didn't have a, a proper pool, nothing. So I, I wrote this and I sent this story to, to uh, England. And I received this check of uh, 5,265 pounds. And I built the fuel station. I create roofs uh, to this town and everything changed. I, I became a local and I, I was able to have this fuel station. And now, for example, we are rehabilitating manatees uh, at, at that fuel station. And I think this very sad story changed my life. Yes, and, and the sad story the story in itself became the how you touched the hearts and minds of others who wanted to help you 
which now you know is part is a small part of everything that you're doing and it's it's yeah and and how do we take also very painful stories forward with us and and in what ways can we use them or celebrate them uh, to you know connect us more together and get things uh, done uh, together so yeah thank you so much for sharing that fernando and thanks for coming on to the podcast it was an honor and uh, i i am very happy to be here with you after 24 years of friendship yes i'm very happy same here thank you so much <laughs>